Welcome to Podcast 115 of the Star Trek Academy. This time we're looking at Star Trek Lower Decks, Season 4, Episode 3, entitled In the Cradle of Vexalon. I'm the Academy Philosophy Professor, Rodney Cup, And I'm the Academy Media Professor, Michael Merrick. Now, we always start our podcast with a brief summary. Some people listen in the first few days after the new episode premieres, but some people listen down the road weeks or months or maybe even years. So this gives people listening down the road an opportunity to refresh their memories about today's episode. In case you have not seen this Lower Decks episode, beware, there are lots of spoilers from here on out through the podcast. With the summary of In the Cradle of Exelon, here is Dr. Rodney Cup. All right. Well, in this episode, the Cerritos visits a Dyson Ring world, Corazonia, where the benevolent caretaker computer Vexelon is malfunctioning. Freeman tries to troubleshoot Vexelon, while Boimler, along with Talin, leads a team of ensigns to Corazonia to upgrade a power terminal. But Boimler can't handle giving orders to people he considers peers, so he starts doing all this dangerous work alone. Meanwhile, the ancient manual for Vexelon isn't clear, and after a failed operating system update, Vexelon starts to return Corazonia to default settings. Freeman discovers that they can restart Vexelon only if they reroute power through the station Boimler is working on. So Boimler has to allow the ensigns to erase everything he's done and redo the work. And Vexelon is restarted, and all is well, except that Boimler dies, but Ta'ana somehow revives him. So thank goodness for that. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Dirk orders Mariner, Tendi, and Rutherford to find a faulty chip in the isolinear chip junction. And there are thousands of them to check. Suspecting that they're being hazed, they put a Wadi Chula game in Dirk's quarters, hoping to trap him inside. But Dirk claims that he was traumatized by a month-long stay in a Wadi Chula game when he was a kid. While Mariner distracts Dirk, Rutherford removes the game from his quarters. Tendy finds the faulty chip. All is well. As it turns out, though, this Wadi Chula story is fictional, and they were being hazed after all, or so I think. Anyway, that's the episode. Okay, thank you. We created this podcast. Really, the main idea was to talk about the philosophy and the themes and the morals to the story of new Star Trek episodes. But it helps to put those things in context if we look first at the production of the episode, production design, the character development, continuity with past Star Trek and other elements just of the production. And Rodney, the the megastructure in this episode is one that's been discussed in the scientific literature, an entire Mm -hmm. ring in orbit around a star. Right. And in science fiction, too, I remember as a teenager in the 1980s reading these novels by Larry Niven set in a ring world, which looks like a ribbon orbiting a star. Yeah, a really great, big, huge one with many times as much uh, surface space as planet Earth. It's an interesting idea. It would require almost impossibly huge resources to actually build. And if the aliens were using money, it would be phenomenally expensive. And the ring itself would probably be more mass than many planets put together. 
based on the theoretical models, you don't need a cover or a ceiling, if you will, over the Mm -hmm. landforms because centripetal force acts like gravity and it essentially keeps the atmosphere between the outer walls, at least if the outer walls are are big and, and tall enough. Now, I hear what you're saying. I mean, the the amount of material you'd need to build something like this, I mean, it seems undoable. But even more so, I guess, would be the Dyson Sphere in that fifth season TNG episode, Relics, right? Yeah. yeah. So there's a precedent for something like this in the Star Trek universe, at least. Yeah. And, you know, they they made clear this this was made by some departed alien species. We don't Mm -hmm. know anything about them. It would be much more advanced than we are, probably mined a lot of asteroids. And it certainly, as a scientific concept, is interesting. There are several things I want to talk about in this episode. And first, right at the beginning, you note that the opening credits were the first thing in this episode. There was no opening, if you will, teaser or set up. Some people call them a cold open for the episode. We started right with the opening credits. Yeah, I had to rewind just to make sure I hadn't skipped it. <laughs> I can remember, I think, only one other episode of Lower Decks that had that didn't have a teaser, although I can't remember which one it was. Yeah, you know, usually the credits aren't the first thing in any TV episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually saw a complaint online about this Lower Decks episode not having a teaser and open. Really? But I think sometimes just the script needs it. I mean, that opening teaser may be a couple minutes long, usually sometimes longer. It's a segment of the story, and there's a breaking point there. Even if we're not watching commercials, there's a there's a breaking point in the story for the credits. And sometimes the break there in the first few minutes just doesn't work for the story, particularly in an animated episode like this. It's only 25 minutes of content long. So uh, I was sort of surprised. I was not offended. And I think it really is a product of the script and the way the story kind of connects together as we tell it. Mm-hmm. You notice the ferret, right? Oh, of course. Right. Did you Lance notice? Yeah. Did you notice that the ferret often headed for Rutherford's trousers? Uh, no, it makes sense though. I mean, if you're if you're uh, freaked out by a ferret, that's probably where it's headed, right? Like the ferret in the final scene jumped up on his shoulders, but then went down, if you will, <laughs> into his lap. I wasn't sure if there was something off color here or not, but Wikipedia says that ferret legging is an endurance test or stunt in which pet ferrets are trapped in trousers worn by a participant, and it appears to have been popular among coal miners in Yorkshire, England, <laughs> long time ago at a time when really only the rich were supposed to have pets. And so when officials came around, they'd hide the ferrets in the trousers. As a sport now, ferret legging, like I said, is a sport contestants put live I assume pet ferrets inside their trousers, and the winner is the one who is the last to release the animals. So, but it, it was subtle. Um, you have to have kind of heard of it to notice the destination of the, the ferret often. I thought Ransom's reactions to the statues was funny. Uh, yeah. The locals, you know, thought the one set was wonderful and the others not, but we yeah. could see they were, for all practical purposes, identical. And Ransom was making what seemed to be nuanced comments about the art, but I think he was just spouting memorized phrases. I don't think he really knows anything about art. Uh, he didn't say so? this, he didn't say the same thing about this, about both sets of, 
of statues. They were, they, both comments were kind of negative. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think he was just saying something that you learn to say, just like most people are not wine connoisseurs, but sometimes they know things you can say about wine to sound like you're a wine connoisseur. You know, I, now that I'm thinking about this, Michael, you know, I wonder, one of the fun things about the next generation was that all of the folks on the ship, they were allowed to have these outside interests or hobbies, and it turned out to be, it seems like kind of a great place to be because you could, you know, explore all these different interests. I don't know, maybe Ransom does know something about art, although he's not the kind of guy I would suspect to be into art. I, I see him as being into weightlifting Wait, and cardio. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Hey, can we talk about the storage anomaly room? Yes, let's. Yeah, there are a few, a few things in there. We'll just point them out. There was a Lerpa. Uh, mm-hmm. you might remember that's the weapon that they used in the original series episode, uh, Amuck Time. The, the blade and, on one end and the weight on the other. That's right. Yeah. yeah the club. Uh-huh. And is this, I think this is not the first time we've seen something in lower decks that looks like Nomad. Yeah, Nomad is the probe from the original series episode, The Changeling, which, yeah. by the way, as almost everyone has noticed, is very similar but on a smaller scale to V'ger in the motion picture. Right. At the end of The Changeling, Nomad self-destructs. You know, mm-hmm. Kirk does the drive the computer crazy with logic yeah. thing or whatever <laughs> it is, and Nomad self-destructs, or at least there was a big explosion and it seemed like it self-destructed. But you're right, I think we've seen... Nomad, what appears to be Nomad, in more than one Lower Decks episode now. So uh, is it Nomad? Are there multiple Nomads? Are these, like, museum-quality reproductions? And I, I, I wonder, not just Nomad, but all these other things, too. Why are all these relatively familiar artifacts on a, candidly, a dinky little California-class second contact ship? Where would they have hmm. come across all of them? Why do they have them on their ship? Now, I know, in real life, they're there as visual Easter eggs for the fans. I mean, I know that. But still, I think about the continuity within the Star Trek universe, too. Sure. Fair enough. The Vexelon operating system had not mm. been updated for eons. I don't remember how many million years they said. but uh, so... Six million and seven years. Okay. So <laughs> where did Freeman get the update files? <laughs> right. It's not like Vexelon has some kind of version of Windows update still out there. In spite of what we see on TV sometimes, not all computer operating systems are compatible with each other. And certainly when you talk about if there are computer systems on other planets, they're not interchangeable everywhere. It seems like Freeman was a bad student in her ancient technology minor that she talked about. She didn't want to admit it. But she thought she could just muddle through, and it didn't work too well. True enough. Uh, speaking of Vexelon, I really like this. I enjoyed seeing a benevolent caretaker computer in this episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, Vexelon, perfectly pleasant. The Corazonians love him. And, you know, the Star Trek universe has all these evil supercomputers, and Lower Dex has had its share, too. And so I just found this refreshing. Yeah, you know, we've talked about how in the 1960s, that was when we first were starting to get computer databases, and people were really uptight about being turned into numbers. And Yeah, that. a little paranoid. And so many of the original series episodes had these negative impacts of computers, and that kind of set the stage or made the mold 
the later Star Trek episodes have often kind of come back to that theme. Billups makes the joke about the Unotronic computer system. In the original series, we learned that the Constitution class starships were run by Comptronic computer systems, and then Dr. Daystrom's M5 computer was a Multitronic, so it mm. kind of seems like Unotronic led to Comptronic, led to mm-hmm. Multitronic, and then led to on to other things. So it could be an engineer's joke about an ancient system, you know, which would be like 120 years or more before Lower Decks time, like joking about Windows 3 today. Although, of course, Windows 3.11 was even better. Oh, right, right. They worked out all those bugs. Windows. Windows well, 3. Windows 3.11 was like amazing. That that was the version of Windows that first introduced office networking. So really, yeah. Speaking of computer stuff, the isolinear chips, to me, they looked more like SD cards. Did they kind of look like SD cards to you when we saw the yeah. close-ups? Uh, glowing ne- SD cards, yeah. Yeah. In next gen, the isolinear chips really looked a lot more, there were colors and things, but they looked a lot more the size and shape of microscope slides. That's right. There was that first season episode, second episode of the first season, where we got to see a bunch of them on the floor. And there was one in which Data had to use super speed to rearrange them in a panel and things like that. So, yeah, we've we've certainly seen them before. Finally, for this section of the podcast, I've been trying to track down to Lynn's statement that everything that has ever occurred is science. Did that ring a bell for you? It didn't ring a bell for me. It just struck me as incorrect. But go ahead. Well, it rang a bell with me. and Some people, it's probably obvious. But I had to do some detective work. And what seemed familiar to me was my T-shirt from the 2008 science fiction convention at our school, Rodney, because I remembered the following very similar quote printed on the back of the T-shirt. It said, everything you dream is fiction, and anything you accomplish is science. The whole history of mankind is nothing but science fiction. Okay? That was printed on the back of the T-shirt with several other quotes. When I had that wording... It was easy to track down. That is supposedly a quote from Ray Bradbury. Oh, and if you know Ray the, Bradbury. Yeah, if you know the wording, it's all over the Internet. But okay. I can't find a citation of when or where he supposedly said it. And I did see some speculation that it is incorrectly attributed to him. So it's often attributed to Ray Bradbury. Who knows where it really came from? Anything you dream is fiction, and anything you accomplish is science, The whole history of mankind is nothing but science fiction. And then that is compared without violating copyright to to Lynn saying everything that has ever occurred is science. Mm. Yeah, you got to be careful out there on the Internet. You you get all kinds of things falsely attributed to all kinds of people. Yeah. But uh, with that background on the writing and production of this episode, let's shift gears here and talk about meaning. And here we're thinking about messages that perhaps are being conveyed in this episode, maybe intended to be conveyed by the writers and producers, or maybe, whether they like it or not, meanings that are discoverable in this episode. Well, Rodney, over many podcast episodes, I've talked about leadership lessons in Star Trek. Yes. In fact, that there are some points in the past that it seemed to be every week, and I think maybe you got a little tired of it. But uh, I think that's what this episode is about. And I still feel that this series is in part a workplace comedy. 
And so it's perfectly fitting that we're going to get some commentary on on leadership, at least in the workplace here. Mm-hmm. All three subplots. There are three subplots in the episode, and I think right. they all focus on leadership. Okay, let's review, Michael. I, okay. I counted these. I had to count these because I was looking for what they have in common. So, one, we've got Boimler leading his very first away team. Good for him. Two, we've got Mariner, Tendy, and Rutherford doing this quote-unquote ensign work, checking all these isolinear chips. And then third, we have Freeman and Ransom, but mainly Freeman, updating this uh, software for this caretaker computer. Or trying to, yeah. Or trying to, yeah. So I think Boimler makes the mistake of many new leaders, and uh, he tries to do everything himself. Now, in this case... He's yeah. trying to keep his subordinates safe, and that's understandable. But still, he doesn't, like, let them get a foot in the door to the actual work that's being done. Yes, if you know how to do something, it often feels easier to just do it than to train somebody else because it'll take three times as long, and they might not do it just the way I want. Or to trust them, Michael. Yeah, yeah, to trust them to do the task at the level that you consider to be acceptable assuming maybe that they have lesser knowledge about how to do it. But when you do that, or when you don't give them that opportunity, it doesn't give them the chance to develop. You know, everybody, you yourself, had to take some time to learn how to do it to begin Mm -hmm. with. I talked last podcast about Talyn being an outside observer to comment on humanity as the purpose of the character. And that's what she's doing here. In this case, she's the outside observer of Boimler's leadership efforts, and she is the one who who steps in to correct him. In a way, she's outside. I mean, she's part of the team, but she's not one of the ensigns, and so she is more on an equal level with him, and both in terms of knowledge and in terms of protocol, she probably is the right one to be providing the corrective feedback. Yeah, and Boimler needs it, of course, but he takes it well, and I think that... Isn't this the second, at least the second episode this season in which Talyn is teaching our former ensigns lessons, right? And that, and that word is actually used in the episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah, think and, so. yeah. I think it was in a previous episode she said something like that was not the lesson yeah. to be learned here. Right. In this one she says, um, that is not how to convey the lesson to the ensigns or some yeah. such thing. Yeah. So I feel like maybe her role here in season four is kind of solidifying. You know, yes, she is essentially part of the crew in her provisional role, whatever that is, but she is still the outside observer. And she, in some ways, is seeing the same thing that we as the audience, as the fans are. But she is the one who can provide the feedback. Now, yeah. in a way, I think Captain Freeman makes the same mistake as Boimler. In her case, she probably has less knowledge than some of her subordinates in engineering. And yeah. Only when she really got in trouble, she called the engineers in. She pokes around and isn't really clear on what the manual says. She tries this. Oops, tries that. Uh, and to be honest, that's how a lot of people solve their computer problems, right? You try this. Oh, that didn't work. Let me try something else. Maybe that's the point, though, Michael. I, you know, we can relate to Freeman's problem with Vexelon here because we have similar problems with our computers, right? Yeah. Um, even though I agree, the idea that, you know, Vexelon needs an operating system update, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense here. But yeah, it gives but, us something to relate to. Yeah, but Freeman was kind of bluffing her way through a problem that other people yeah. could have done better than her, and it was a high-stakes situation. It was the True. computer running this entire 
unusual megastructure world, not just oh, my computer won't reboot. I'll I'll try again in the morning, which right. happened to me this last week. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Well, yeah. So the idea is she should have just simply trusted her subordinates, namely Phillips or some other engineer uh, to take care of the problem. Right. You know, I've often said that uh, a boss, a leader, a manager, I don't think the manager needs to know how to do the job to the level the subordinates know. But I think the manager needs to have an idea of what's going on. And some managers, you know, in bigger corporations have no idea what the the subordinates lower down in the organization do or, or how they do it. You know, and, and Freeman knows enough about computers and things. She would be able to assess the situation, you know, call the engineering staff down and give them a, a starter, but she would be better off not to try to do it all herself. So, again, I think it's very similar to Boimler's error in this episode, well-meaning error. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then we have Mariner, Tendi, and Rutherford, their subplot, which I think also addresses leadership. Now, you said in your summary, and yeah, they were probably receiving a bit of hazing, but this was also um, a situation in which they learned, and I think they learned a, a worthwhile lesson about understanding where people are coming from and being willing to forgive or being willing to go with the flow rather than just trying to get revenge. And that is true. I mean, they they say, you know, from now on, we're just going to assume the best of people. But, you know, their initial instincts were right, I think. They were being hazed. I think that's what the dialogue in the end between Dirk and Ransom suggests pretty strongly. Yeah, but, I mean, hazing is, I haven't looked up a, a formal definition of it, but it's something harmful that you do for fun or something to demonstrate your dominance of the situation. And I'm not sure that's what Dirk and Ransom were doing. It could be they are. Or maybe it's a standard kind of learning exercise you always do with brand new lieutenants junior grade. And Ransom and Dirk were just kind of observing the varying results and sometimes finding humor in it. Remember when Wesley was applying for Starfleet Academy and Mm -hmm. he thought there was a lab explosion down the hall and he was really stressed out by who am I going to save? But it was part of the test. And it's kind of like, you know, you're well aware teachers tell each other, you'll never believe what this student did with that assignment. I'm not sure that it was just mean-spirited hazing. I think it was something done, which yeah, uh, was not as enjoyable and not as received favorably as other things might be, but for the purpose of teaching them about lieutenanting. You know, I think Mariner defines hazing this episode as a team-building exercise that nobody enjoys or that's actually annoying, something like that. By her definition, that may right. well be what we're talking about. Yeah, that could be. You know, I have to go back and look at it again. I'm not sure that that's what most organizations would consider to be hazing, but um, but at, at least I think they did learn a lesson. We'll see if it is a lesson that they continue to remember as they go forward. So we've talked about leadership, but all three of these subplots also address what is called followership. Leaders have to understand who their followers are, what their strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, but the other side of the coin is that followers need to understand their leaders, their supervisors, and how to work with them, including when and how to advise the leader about changing plans. 
I had a boss once when I was working in the radio business who, if you hit him in the hallway with a situation, he would almost always make what I personally consider to be the wrong decision. But if you write it out on paper, present Mm. your thoughts in logical order, he would almost always make the decision that I thought was the right decision. And so you need to understand each other and understand how to work with them. Boimler's ensigns, they were following orders. They weren't that happy about it. They were a little frustrated about it, but they were following yeah. orders. And Tolin was also. She was in a little bit different role, but she's the one that stepped up to help Boimler understand he wasn't handling things right. And when the ensigns did momentarily resist Boimler's orders, Tolin is the one who said, you know, you're or- follow orders, get with it. So Boimler, I think, he had the the best intentions to keep his subordinates safe, but he wasn't really engaging in servant leadership, which is when the leader actively works to help subordinates succeed. Well, why don't we uh, take time for our final thoughts here, Michael? Uh, You know, the episode, I mean, it's hard not to like these episodes. I I certainly did like this one. But what do you think? I thought it was a good episode. Um Three subplots is kind of a lot to cram together, but they were good subplots, well-paced. And again, as a writer, what you want to do with your subplots is that you want them to reinforce each other. And I think they did that very nicely. We've already talked about that. Well, yeah, you've convinced me of that. I am a little disturbed or disappointed that, well, again, I guess we disagree about this a little bit. But, you know, if hazing exists in Starfleet, you know, we're talking about, the 2380s here. I mean, come on. Uh, that's, that's disappointing. If it really was essentially hazing, yeah, that's not a good practice to show to the audience. At least I think the new lieutenant's junior grade responded to it appropriately or learned how to respond appropriately. Yeah. Was there anything that bothered you in this episode? Well, there was. It bothered me last week in last week's podcast too, which had two episodes we talked about. I didn't mention it last week. But we are seeing uh, an increased use of profanity. Now, of course, they bleep the words. You, you don't hear the words, but it's not at all hard to figure out what profanity is being used. It's pretty clear what's being said. And we've seen a little profanity now and then in live action Star Trek recently, too. For the last couple of years or so, Star Trek has never really used or needed profanity in telling its stories. Uh, except maybe for the most powerful moments. I mean, at the end of The City on the Edge of Forever, Kirk's visceral statement there, because it was so rare, it was powerful. And I, I understand, I, I recall that it took a lot of a negotiation to get it past the NBC censors, but they were persuaded that this is such a powerful moment that it's justified. Yeah, it was totally appropriate, definitely. But it was something you almost never heard on TV at right. that time in the 1960s, it was, yeah. it, it's not talked about much, but it was virtually groundbreaking that in a over the air broadcast primetime TV show, they would use that word. You know, in comedy, and yes, Lower Decks is comedy. In comedy, and, and I'm thinking of comedy aimed at grown ups, stand up comedians, club venues, things like that. Profanity is often used for its shock value. And yeah, it does cause laughter. To me, it's an example of once you're a wit, twice you're a half wit. And so it's not that there's never a hint of profanity, but that we're hearing it a lot. And overuse, I think, is what causes it to lose its artistic value. Even though we're not hearing the words, we're hearing the beeps. 
the more it happens, the less innovative it is. I think multiple times an episode, as we had this week, is too much. It's just unnecessary. Yeah, I've got a few thoughts here. You know, (laughs) we've been looking for clean comedians on our streaming services for, for our daughter. And there's some really, really good clean comedy out there. I mean, really, really funny stuff. You know, it's funny you mentioned this. I read an interview on Cinema Blend uh, just this past week with an animator, uh, Barry Kelly, and this producer, Brad Winters from Lower Decks. And they said that they think that bleeped profanity is funny. And it's funnier than profanity that isn't bleeped. And I think they suggested that their decision to include this was ultimately endorsed by the showrunner, Mike McMahon. So I hear what you're saying, Michael, but my guess is that we're going to see more of it and we're just going to have to get used to it, I'm afraid. Yeah, probably so. Uh, uh, Again, I'm going to go back to my statement earlier. Once you're a wit, twice you're a half wit. Mm -hmm. So they should use it very sparingly. And if they do that, it will be kind of innovative and it will be funny. I didn't go back and count how many times in this episode they used it. It must have been at least a half dozen in 25 minutes, and that was, for me, a bit much. That seems a bit right, and I think you're right. It, it's The use is increasing. So, And, you know, it doesn't really offend me, but again, you know, like you were saying, if you overuse it, it's just not funny anymore or effective. I'm not offended either, but we've never had it at this pace before in, in Star Trek, even knowing that it's blipped. And, you know, I think in terms of, of the writing and the message and the story, uh, less is more in this case. Right. Yeah. Okay. I guess that just about does it for this podcast. We thank you for joining us. We will be back next week with our reflections on episode four of season four of Lower Decks. You can stay in touch with us on social media feeds, Mastodon, Twitter, Facebook, at Trek underscore Academy. And also at Tumblr, at Trek Academy without the underscore. You can search online for Star Trek Academy podcast and look for our red Vulcan hand salute logo, the one that's full of stars. And also don't forget to subscribe via your podcast app to automatically get the new podcast downloads. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you when Lower Decks returns on the Star Trek Academy podcast.